All right, welcome back to the show. So I got a, I got a real special guest in the house today. I don't know if it's. I, I look at Leslie, and I, I'm thinking, man, I don't know if this is like a. I think of like a GI Joe and a Inspector Gadget, kind of kind of hybrid. I appreciate the compliment. I <laughs> appreciate you being on. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, man. So tell tell our listeners exactly what what who are you and what you do, man. I, I I've seen you, you know, in my in, in my news feed on Facebook for years. Mm-hmm. I see fast cars. I see <laughs> helicopters. I see guns. But I still I know you've you're an interesting fella. And I don't really know where to put my finger on you. <laughs> well, there's a lot of places to throw darts at. Okay. Uh, so the the backstory: born and raised in Silver Creek, uh, local boy. Um, you know, and it, it, it's funny. I, I just had this conversation with a friend yesterday. Um, what I have now is is not a, really a reflection of where I came from. Uh, okay. You know, I worked at the mill. My whole family worked at the mill um, back when the mill was operational, and I, I had a particularly hard job. I worked in the weave room on third shift. And I, you know, in the Army, we call it embrace the suck. Right. Well, I learned embrace the suck before I got to the Army. So, you know, Dad worked in the mill. Mom worked at the Salvation Army, just a typical Silver Creek family. Yeah. Um, and then uh, went, went to Pepperell. And funny story there. So, uh, and I do not, let me go ahead and preface this by saying I don't recommend anybody to drop out of school. I, I did because there was no need to keep trying because my grades were straight Fs. My 10th grade report card is framed on my office wall over my patents. It was straight F's. The highest grade was a 53. Was, was it Was it because you, you were like, you just didn't have interest in school or you actually just didn't, it just wasn't clicking with you? I think like, both. Both? I okay. think both. According to my college transcript, which I attempted to go one semester at Floyd College and was put on academic probation, it said math deficient. So I said, you know what? I'm just not going to try to add letters and numbers. They won't add, so right. I'm not trying. Uh, but <laughs> um, then I, I went from, from that to, um, and I'll tell you a story that kind of put me on the path where I'm at today. Yeah. It kind of got me down the, the entrepreneurship path. Many years ago, I worked at Quick Tune and Lube, and then I went in the Army when I was 23, so it would have been before that. And I was down in the pit one day changing the oil. That's what I did. When I, whatever year that would have been, if you pulled up, I was the guy down in the pit changing the yeah. oil. And I would never have thought later that, I'd have, you know, the, the situation is what it is today. Right. This guy pulls up in a Mercedes, and, and I never knew him, and he never knew me, but he had a profound effect on me. So the way that particular engine is, the oil filter is on the front. So when you take the oil off, it's going to get on your hands. There's no way around it, and it's hot oil. Yep. So I drop his oil filter, and while the oil's draining, there's nothing we can do while the oil's draining. You know, it burnt my hand. I'm walking up the steps to go put cold water on my arm. It's right. This guy, who was obviously very wealthy, had a very nice Mercedes. He had a very nice watch at the time. I didn't know what a Rolex was. I do now. Um, he had a very nice suit. And he snapped at me and looked at me. He said, in a very angry tone, he looked at his watch and he goes, Can you hurry up? I've got somewhere I need to be. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't say anything to him. I got fired. Right. I was like 250 280 a week, whatever I was making. I needed it. You know, I can't yeah, get fired. Can't, I can't yeah. get fired. So I just sucked it up. And when I was back running the cold water on my arm, I made a promise to myself. I said, no matter what I have or what I don't have, I'll never be that guy. Yeah. And I thought he had to do something to get where he is. And I realized quickly that, you know, he has nice things. He has a nice car. He has nice, you know, all these things. And I'm down in a pit changing oil. And I thought, I want to be where he is. And I realized that, that working a nine to five job for me, and I'm not, I'm not making, you know, comments. Yeah, I I get it. But for me, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So that kind of put me on the path of inventing. And that 
it, that that is a long story that we yeah. can cover, but that got me where I am today. Well, yeah, and speaking of the the Lindell Mill, my family worked at the mill. Okay, um, my dad was an electrician there. Uh, he's got a lot of videos him, of him hanging the star oh, yeah. between the stacks. I'm on the star crew now. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. his mom worked at the mill, and he, as a matter of fact, I told him that we were going to be doing a, a episode today, and he mm-hmm. he said he knew your dad, Paul. Yes, Paul Duke. Yeah, so he, he knew your dad very well. Yeah, dad and Buddy Rayburn were the power plant engineers. They were the two guys that were responsible for making sure the turbine ran. So I remember as a small child, two, three, four in the morning. Now, this is back when we had landlines. Cell phone doesn't exist. Um, the phone would ring, and dad would have to get up and go in at whatever time it was and fire off the turbine. Wow. And, and he and Buddy Rayburn were the only two people in the mill that did that. And, you know, when you have that position, you don't have hours. You do what needs to be done. Yeah. And I remember a lot of times he'd get up weird hours, come home late, because in the summer, Georgia Power would cut their power supply off, so they had to make their own because the load was too great. They had to send it to civilian customers, right. and they would fire off the turbine. And I learned a lot of my – I had this conversation this literally this morning with a friend of mine. I learned my work ethic from him that nothing's given to you. You know, you you got to make it happen. You got to go. You got to dig. You got to make it happen. So, you did you? Would you say you grew up kind of, you know, middle class, poor? Well, I, or? I, I would say. Well, my I've come to find out a few years ago after both my parents passed away, going through some of the old family stuff, that my grandmother on my mom's side was on food stamps. I didn't know that. So, I would say I grew up lower to middle class. Um, there's technically nine social classes. You, we typically say lower, middle, and upper, but there's technically nine. Okay, lower, lower. Lower, middle, lower, and you know you got yeah, and you got the middle, tiers. middle, lower, middle, 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 upper, and it goes on up. So I would say I would be lower middle class. Yeah. So when you were down in that that oil pit and you, you that that light bulb went off in your head, the epiphany. This this <laughs> this is you know you could tell that working your your you know normal nine to five wasn't going to get you mm-hmm. to that dream you you aspired you know you got inspired by seeing that guy with the Mercedes. Yeah. Like what was how old were you then? Oh, I would have been in my. I went in the army in twenty three, so that would have been twenty, twenty one, twenty two. Okay, so how do you how do you transition from the thought to actual action? You said you, I mean, you, you just wake up one morning and say, "I'm going to invent something," or yes and no. Have you always tinkered with stuff as I a kid? Have always tinkered with stuff, and <laughs> I, I have to throw out some some credit here, and I'm still in contact with him today. Um, my, my the teacher most responsible for firing up my imagination and putting me on the path, and everybody that went to Pepperell is going to know the name I'm fixing to throw out. Mr. Brookshire. Okay. Yeah. I'm still in touch with Mr. Brookshire. We communicate regularly. We both have a passion for cars. Um, he has a beautiful Ford Model T. Um, I've been over to his house and check it out. That's his pride and possession, just like my cars are to me. But Mr. Brookshire, at a quick story in the sixth grade, you know, he was our middle school science teacher. And we were experimenting with batteries and lights and things. And if you add more batteries, the lights get brighter. Mm-hmm. Well, as an adult, we know that. But as a small child, you're like, why does that do that? You know? <laughs> so... I was experimenting with that and changing it in different ways and things. And, and I asked Mr. Brookshire to come over and ask him, why does this do this? And he says, he looked at me and goes, I don't know, Leslie, you tell me. Which was his way of saying, you figured you out. You figured out. I'm not giving you the answer. Wow. Mr. Brookshire always nurtured that. And it wasn't just me, any student that was in his class. Um, he always nurtured that, you know, go figure it out. Right. Make it happen. So I have to give a lot of credit to Mr. Brookshire. And he kind of fired up that, the tinkering side of me. And this was in? This was in middle school. Middle school. Middle school. And you take that seed that was planted early from Mr. Brookshire to the situation with the gentleman in the Mercedes, and you put those two together, and at least in my experience for me, that equals success. Yeah, and you know, I've always had a little entrepreneur bone in me, but like I've never, 
I've never thought to try to invent something, which, you know, I, I watch a lot of Shark Tank. I'm not sure if you've ever watched it or not. But. I have. The, the thing about Shark Tank, and funny you mentioned Shark Tank, <laughs> yeah. is this. So, uh, as you know, I, I do have some pretty successful products. And Shark Tank, those guys, what they'll do, and I'm, I'm comparing what they do versus what I do. Shark Tank will take your idea and they'll give you some money to make your idea, your concept, your prototype a viable, what we call product on pallet. Mm-hmm. Get it in production, get it on, in store so people buy it. But they'll take 60, 80% of your of the ownership of your product. Wow. You don't, you don't own it. Now, when you start getting investors, that is, you've got to slice up the pie. But typically, unless you're just, you know, crawling to venture capitalist guys on your hands and knees, you shouldn't be giving up 60, 80%. Right. So about two years ago, I actually started a consultation service. Um, it's on Facebook. It's Invention Consultation Services. I've had so many people come to me and say, hey, man, you know, I know what you've done in the past. Can you help me with an idea? And that's what I do. And I don't take any percentage. I just have a flat hourly rate. You know, I don't want a percentage of your, you, you earned it. You, you get okay. it, you know, yeah. so, and that way, and, and don't ever, ever, ever go to these people that this, and what is it called? And, and I'm not going to throw out any names. I don't want to cast in shade on anybody, but it's the, you see it on TV and they're like, send us your idea and we will, right. we will help you. No, they <laughs> they'll, won't. They'll steal it. They'll steal it. <laughs> because oh, man. once you send that to them, they won't sign a confidentiality agreement, which is what you want if it's not yet patented. Right. And if you send it to them. You might as well just have given up because now they're going to run with it. So yeah, the only the only time I ever thought of a, an idea, and I, I don't mind saying it because if somebody wants to steal it, and, and they probably already have it on on on, mod, on certain model vehicles, but and I was young when I thought of this, and I, I think I had called it ESDS onboard ESDS electronic scent displace displacement system. It was my idea of because I used to clean cars. Okay. Uh, detail cars and everybody would want me to leave an air freshener and make it smell good sure so i was like how cool would it be if if there was like a uh, cartridge on the dash where you could screw in a bottle of your favorite scent right and it had had like a, some kind of pump or tubes going out through the car and under each seat had like a little mister mm-hmm. so you could just press a button on yeah. the steering wheel of the dash and it would just put out a small mist of a of a, of a fragrance the fragrance and, of your choice yes yes, yes. on board esds and yeah. i was going to sell it i was going to write up a paper and send it to ford never did do it uh, but hey, if you want to take it, go ahead. <laughs> it may, I, as, as of right now, I don't think I've never been. I've never been in a vehicle. But in, in my mind, they're probably thinking, man, you know, people can go by and get a dollar, a little leaf, and hang in their in their mirror. You know, is that really going to be a, a feature on a vehicle that makes us sell more cars? I don't know, but I don't know, man. But it, it, you know, you have the thing now that actually clips into your vent, right? That will blow it out, out in there and things like that. Yeah. And it's it's funny you mention that. So the very first thing I tell somebody, you ask about how the path to inventing is this. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you walk in Home Depot right now, you too can spend nineteen ninety five of your hard earned money to buy a magnet on a stick. Yes. Okay. So somebody at some point went, hmm, I need to pick up nails. I need to pick up things that are metal. Oh, yeah. They even got the ones on wheels. Exactly. Where you can go around like a construction site. Yes, and, and it pick picks up. them up. Love it. Yeah. So somebody said, I have a great idea. I wonder if it's out there. So many ideas get not necessarily stolen from you, but because people don't pursue them because they think somebody else has done it. They just assume it's already been done. It. And I, we have a product now. Um, Savannah actually co-developed a equine bucket. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so that magnet on the stick, somebody patented it and now nobody else can do it. And Home, Home Depot said, thank you very lots. And now somebody's sipping martinis on their island. Right. Because they pursued that idea. And that goes back to that mailbox money it goes we back were talking to about. Mailbox money. 
Yes, you don't want to build a $100 million factory. You know, and people say, well, if I invent uh, something, what are my options? Well, you have several. You, if you have a lot of money, then, of course, you can build a factory and hire employees and, and deal with that nightmare, which I don't recommend. Manufacturing. Oh, yeah. no. Or what I have done is you build a proof-of-concept prototype, get it working, get the idea polished, you know, get all your bugs worked out. And then you build what's called a pre-production prototype, something you can present to interested companies. Yeah, like you would spend a little bit more money on yeah, the, the prototype. Exactly. You know, make it Polish look a it little... up. Yeah, make it look good. And then present it to them. And then you have three options or any combination. Typically, when you change hands with IP, there are three options. An outright purchase up front, cash up front, some money up front, and some money per part produced. And then nothing up front and more per part produced or any combination thereof. And that's mailbox money. So if somebody buys something, you know, you get a check every month. What do you think about the guy that invented, like, I just think of some of the simplest stuff like Velcro or the, the little plastic things on the end of your shoestrings. That is one of the most valuable patents ever. They're, I mean, because they're on every pair of shoes. Yeah, and I that's mean, that's like an invention. Somebody it, invented that. It is. I mean, again, if, if you take the conversation we discussed before <laughs> we went on air, if you got a penny apiece, oh my gosh. how many millions a month would it be? And that's just... Yeah, like he's and that person necessarily didn't start a factory making them. He's no. just he's just got the patent and you it's like it. a like a licensing. You would do a type thing. You can you can do a licensing to where you maintain ownership of the intellectual property. There you and go. then now you have two types of license: an exclusive and non-exclusive. Non-exclusive means twenty different companies can make it and sell it for different applications. Exclusive means this company has it. Period. Nobody else can make it, distribute it. Well, apparently that. That little plastic thing on the end of shoestrings, everybody's got it. It is worth a lot of money. Yeah. Now, the thing about a patent is they're only good between 15 and 20 years. After that, anybody and everybody, and they will, will copy your technology. Wow. So you have a finite amount of time to print as much money as you can. So the guy that invented that little plastic piece, he his time probably ran up at some point. Oh, I it imagine. ran out decades ago. Decades ago. Oh, yeah. And somebody else probably snatched it up. Sure. Now, anybody can make it, and they do not owe him any royalties of any kind. Dang. Because it's open market at that point. Would he... Did he have the like first dibs to renew it? I mean, like, could he, could could he have not have been like, hey, that's mine. I want to keep it. No, no, you can't do that. Once your patent time is up, it's up. Really? Yeah, yeah. you got about fifteen years, twenty years, depending, and and that's it. Why don't they do that in office? And what now? <laughs> oh, yes, why, yes. why don't they do that in the uh, political office where once you once you get in, great, yes, <laughs> and maybe some senility testing. <laughs> so, because you hear about these people, that's like. It's like been you know, there sixty years. Sixty yeah. years. Yeah. It's got yeah. corrupt. You know. Yeah. I'm like they should have like a limit on oh, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's to, to touch base before my mind turns to water and run out my ears. You talked about <laughs> you know people thinking something has been done. Let me give you an example. Yeah. So, um, and and this is this is not really a typical story, but if you have a good product, it can be typical. Uh, so Savannah has several horses. You've seen her horses yep. on Facebook. Beautiful. And, and she's got these big expensive race horses and. Uh, I call one of them the Ferrari pony because it's literally worth more than my Ferrari. Really? It is. It, by a factor of a lot. Uh, it's a serious racehorse. But anyway, so we were feeding this horse one day. And these horses require a special diet. They're, they're supplements. They're vitamins, all this stuff. It can be 30 to 50 to $70 a bucket of, of food. And I, wow. I place, put the food down, you know. And I, as I turn around to speak to her, I, I hear the very distinctive sound of a bucket going over the fence. And you can hear it, thunk, and it lands over there. And I look around at Savannah and I said, is there a better way to do this? She goes, nope, that's state of the art. Like throwing a bucket over a Yeah, throwing a, a bucket. You can spill the bucket and it knocks the food over, knocks the water over. You know? Right. And I said, is there a better way? And she said, no, that's state of the art. If there was a better product, I'd know about it and I'd be using it. And I went, you sure? There's not a better way. 
And she went, no. I said, wow. oh, okay. So I, I pulled a, a Howard Hughes, if you're familiar with Howard Hughes. Um, I, I literally took some plywood and a, a hand jigsaw that I remember my dad had when I was in, you know, 10, 15 years old. And I still have it. Went in the carport and made the world's first, and now it's patent pending, so it's the only. Wow. Interlocking, no tip, no spill bucket for the equine industry and the pet industry and the paint industry. And because the, nobody had thought of the interlock on a bucket, the intellectual property covers, and this is long, so here's what it covers. <laughs> any bucket made out of any material of any size for any use in any industry utilizing any type of interlocking mechanism. Wow. There's a lot. It's not just equine. It's the pet industry. It's the animal rescue industry. It's um, Jeff that used to be the director of Paul's. We went out and spoke to him one day. He gave us a tour out there. Yeah. They spend about 40 man hours a week flipping bucket food and water buckets back over and refilling them because until mm. now there was nothing out there that was a no-tip, no-spill bucket. Mm. And that saves them 40 man hours a week. So it's not just a market in that. It's a market in the pet industry. You know, if you have a dog on a chain or a leash or in his pen and he knocks his bucket over. Right, yeah. Not anymore. Golly. So that product has been purchased by an international equine company. And she sells to, uh, not only through her company, but she sells through Smart Pack. She, sm- she sells through Chewy, which is an online pet company. She is in Dover Saddlery, which is a very high-end uh, saddle uh, equine company. She sells in Tractor Supply, and she's getting in Walmart. So that bucket's about to go. Yeah, global. it's funny you say that because when I used to work for, um, you know, do, doing the stump grinding and or mm-hmm. even s- installing satellite TV on people's, I was at a lot of different homes every day, mm-hmm. and I would go out in the backyard and I would see a dog tied up to a tree, mm-hmm. um, and sure enough, bucket slipped over. The bucket slipped over, and he has no water. Yes, I'm like it's like 100 degrees outside. Yes. And I would I would go get it and fill it back up for it, and it would just sit there and just yeah. it would it would go through a whole bowl, and I'd have to refill it. Yes. So you're saying your yes. your product has solved this? All that man. Yes. And animal control here, I'm friends with all those guys. They can't tell you how many calls they've gone out to for a welfare check on an animal called in from a neighbor. The exact same thing. It's sad. It's flipped over and hadn't had water in hours. You know, if they've gone on vacation, they're going on business, whatever. The dog needs water, so this solves all that. And that's that's one of those things that went from. This kind of goes back how I want to help people with new ideas. Just because you, you, if you see a problem, like that bucket was a problem, they spilled it, don't assume somebody else has done it. That's how a lot of people get passed up on, on pretty serious revenue. Is yeah. they go, well, I'm sure that's out there. Don't say I'm sure. Call your patent attorney and find out. If you don't have a patent attorney, I can help you get one. And it's called a patentability search. So if you have a new, you know, the, the newest mousetrap, the best mousetrap, the very first thing you do, which is what I did with the bucket, is you call your patent attorney and go, hey, I need a patentability search. Well, a patentability search basically says, you know, they will compare your idea, your concept, your prototype, to everything else in the related prior art. Now, mm. prior art means anything remotely close to what you did. Yeah, It's going to come back one of two ways. Patentable merit, which means, you know, proceed and make some money, or unpatentable, because either it's exactly like something else or it's so close that, you know, you can't differentiate the difference. Yeah, and then you got other, I guess that, that goes for like other countries too, right? It does. Yeah. It checks everything. Absolutely. And it's, it's funny when my, my patent attorney is Dorian Kennedy, and he called me, this guy's 400 bucks an hour, so when he calls me, the clock's ticking. Mm. But he calls me on a Sunday night on his time and on his dime, and it was about the bucket. And he goes, Leslie, I've been a patent attorney for 30 years, and twice, has a product or an idea concept been brought to me that had absolutely no prior art, 
which really? means nothing, nothing close exists. He said, your bucket's one of those. Man. So it's one of those things that if you see a problem, you know, come up with a solution and then proceed down that path. Don't think somebody else did it. Yeah. They may be thinking the same thing. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So what was the, what was one of your, what was your first legit, like, or what was, what do you, what was one of your first ideas that either didn't work out or, <laughs> or did like you could go both ways there. Like f- tell me some of your, your failures and tell me, tell me one of your first successful. I will. Uh, because know, in order to ideas. have success, you have to have failure. <laughs> You're right. You have to. So the first failure was, and it may exist now, I don't know. As a matter of fact, it does exist. I saw it at AutoZone. It does exist. Uh, being a, a motorhead, both motorcycles and, and cars, you're all the time changing oil, adding fluid, doing this, doing that. So I came up with a, basically it was a spout that you could put on your oil that would had a, like a backflow that the oil would, I mean, I could drain a quart of oil in about four seconds. Right. It wouldn't go blip, 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 blip. Yeah, because it, it makes a mess when it you does. pour it. It does. So this had a tube inside it that would relieve the negative pressure inside the quart of oil. Make it pour smoother. And it just pours instantly. Cons- just, consistently, yes. Yeah. And I, I built a prototype. I tested it. It worked. And I was just, I, I, we still had the hobby shop, so I would have been 17, 18. Never did anything with it. And come to find out later, you can go buy one now at, uh, AutoZone, and what? How does it? Is it? Is it like a? It's similar. It's very okay. similar. Yeah, you just you screw it on, and it's got a tube within a tube, and it allows the air to come in, so you don't Man. get that vacuum inside. And it, it did the exact same thing. It just did it in a different way. I, I, and I totally get it because I couldn't tell you how many times I'd have, I'd be so focused, I'd have that quarter oil, and I'd I'd get it right over the the hole, and you miss, and, and it, <laughs> it gets going, and then all of a sudden a big boom boom, and it spills all over the valve cover, and I'm like, I gotta wipe it up because oh, I want to smell smell burning smoke and whatever else. Right, and then I, I had another one that I never really pursued, which was a, you know, we put sprinklers in our yard to water the yard, water trees, whatnot, and I come up with a device that was a, and I, I thought about it for more of the retirees and your in your nice communities where you have good landscaping and things. And it's basically, this is probably out there, and somebody wants to steal it, go ahead. If it's not, think of about a 270-degree circle with legs on it with a hose that you connect here with drip holes all the way around. So you just set it at the base of each tree. Okay. So you don't waste any water. It drips down on that tree. Yeah. And every two hours, you just move it. I got you. And, and I never pursued it. It's like that. just a drip. It's just a drip. a drip. Yeah, and it just puts it all around the root system, so it goes 360 all the way down. I never pursued it. You know, It may be out there. I don't know. I'm not really a horticulturist guy. So I don't right. Know, um, but... The first success was actually the um, a precision alignment tool for I was racing motorcycles at the time. This would have been uh, late nineties, and it was a precision uh, alignment tool for sport bikes and dirt bikes. And that was my very first patent. When you say alignment tool for like aligning, so basically it takes the whole drivetrain of the motorcycle, the the rear tire, the chain, the sprockets, the brakes, all that. And if you go buy a brand new sport bike. If you, you know, where the, where the swing arm pivots to the frame, you can put a, and it's a, it's a threaded, um, if I remember the patent number, I can tell you, you can Google it, but uh, it's been a while. So it's a threaded rod with two tapered cones that go in the pivot point where the swing arm pivots. Gotcha. And at the back, you do the same thing and you measure that distance. And, and by the sheer, you know, mechanics of how it's assembled, it's going to be perfect. You go buy a brand new bike and it'll be off half an inch. Really? So oh, absolutely. They just slam them together at the factory. And you, you invented a, like a alignment tool. Yes. And at the time, I was I got you know sport rider and motorcyclist and all this, and I sent that prototype to Kent Kunisugu, who was the chief editor of Sport Rider magazine. They tested it on their race box at their track, and he says, "Man, we love this thing. Can I feature this in our what's called the new gear bag section of our 
magazine so people can order it from me. And I said, that would be a nightmare because you have the only one in existence. Because <laughs> you, you hadn't made them yet. I hadn't made them yet. That was the right. only one. And he goes, please let me know when this goes into production. I will, I'll get you, you know, get you some uh, publicity on this. Well, about the time I finished up that, I was working on the second one, which a lot of people know about. It was on, in the paper here in Rome a lot. It was the projectile recovery system. Yeah, which I was, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one that I knew about. And one I got to actually see uh, in person over when you had the museum in town. Yes. And a funny story about that. That was going on at the same time the DC sniper shootings were occurring. It had already, uh, I'd already sold some, you know, GBI crime. Lines. This is what year? Uh, man, I don't remember this. I invented it in the late nineties. So that, I think the shooting was in 2003, 2004. Yeah, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they were using a Bushmaster 556 and, and I don't want to give any credit to these murderers for what they did, but from a, from a tactical standpoint, what they did is they crawled in the trunk of the vehicle. They had the rear seats where they could from inside the car, tinted windows, they'd go in the trunk, had a hole drilled in the back of the car back. You know, the old timey cars had a keyhole for the trunk. Yeah. And I don't know if they were using a suppressor. I think they were. Even if inside the trunk, it would just been muffled. And they were firing. They'd pick a target, and they would fire two, three hundred yards away from inside a trunk. You, you, wow. never, you never saw anybody move. There was no. It's just a car sitting there. It's just a car sitting there. So that car would just crank and pull away. And and typically, you know, when somebody gets shot, everybody's attention goes to the person right. that just got hit. Right. And particularly civilians in the military, the first thing you do is look where the shot came from. Uh, unless you're a medic, then you tend to the wounded guy. But you know, typically the guy with the, the bang sticks, we we point and go that way. But the car just simply pulled away, and it didn't attract any attention because oh. nobody came and went from the car. So from a tactical standpoint, it's pretty clever. Yeah. Man. So I knew they were using a five five six, and because they recovered a couple of the cartridge cases, and I called. I said, "Look, I can I can help with this." Because they said, "If you if anybody can help us, please call the FBI. Put out this tip line." Well, this this system is so sensitive it can capture a five five six ballistic tip intact without damaging the tip, and it still has the powder residue on the projectile. Wow. Which is a big deal. You can do a residual match. So I call that number and I get bounced around to about twenty, thirty different people. And I back when we had the hobby shop, I used to have this guy's name and number taped on the wall as a reminder. I wish I still had it. I would have it on a board similar to you have over there. Except kind of the inverse of that. Yeah. He was the director of the FBI crime lab. And I finally got connected with him, and I introduced myself. I said, hello, my name is Leslie Duke. I have I have invented this new product. Uh, it's been verified by uh, the GBI Crime Lab. Jay Jarvis was the director here at the Crime Lab. He fired into it. He verified it. Uh, Jason Flater was their ballistician. He did an AFTI peer review article on it, Association of Farms and Two Marks Examiners. I mean, it was legit. It was verified. It, yeah. It worked. Well, when I tell the director of the FBI Crime Lab during the shootings that I can help them, that I will, at my cost, put my unit on a trailer and bring it to DC to help them. How, I'm sorry. How, so how does, how does your product help a crime that's already happened? Okay. I was, I'm more confused. Sure. So we'll back up a little bit. So when a murder occurs or a shooting occurs with a firearm, the way that they connect the dots is you will remove the projectile from the victim. Okay. And then to ensure that you have the murder weapon, you will fire another round from oh. the suspected weapon into a water tank. So the water tank, this is my, my product replaces the water tank. Gotcha. The water tank is this big, huge vertical swimming pool. And mm. you, you shoot a round into it. And there's a, you, they have various methods of recovering the round from the bottom. In full metal jacket pistol rounds, it does fine. But high velocity rifle rounds, even full metal jacket, they disintegrate. Hitting water at 3,250 feet a second is like hitting a concrete wall. The, the projectile explodes. Gotcha. So when you go to court, you have the prosecution and the defense, and you have, you know, you, you basically have a split computer screen. 
and it's a 40 power magnification and, and you know typically people call them riflings but their technical term is striations stray mm. and you will compare those you take the one from the bullet recovered from the body to the projectile fired from the suspected murder weapon and you, you try to get a match you try to get a match now what happens a lot is they have to download rifle rounds and download means take a lot of the powder out to slow it down so it doesn't just frag out when it hits right. the water. Well, two things can happen. Number one, depending on certain circumstances, that round can blow up because certain powder does not lend itself well to downloading. You run into some pretty serious issues. And then the pressure is not the same because you're going a lot slower. So it's not an apples-to-apples it's like an apples test. That. And yeah. the defense attorneys will get on that and go, hey, look, that's a different pressure. You know, They try to get the case yeah. kicked out. There's been a lot of murders that, that got off because of that. Man. Well, with this, you can fire full power rounds of the exact same type of ammunition from the exact same weapon, and it would be 100% intact as if you caught it in midair. Literally just. On your, on your yeah. product. What yeah. do you call this thing? I, I just remember this big black Duke, block. Duke, yeah. Well, that's the bulletproof composite. That's different. That's different. This is a, <laughs> this is a projectile recovery system. Oh, uh, wow. The Duke Projectile Recovery System, or DPRS for short. So, you know, I knew it could do what they needed done. So I, yeah. I, I'm on the I wonder. The yeah, I'd be calling them up too, man. Yeah, and, and I have a, a very brief conversation with the director of the FBI crime lab because he said, and I quote, Leslie, if this could be done, we would already be doing it, and hung up on me. Wow. Yeah. So they, they think they just got it all. They all figured out. Absolutely. And, you know, typically with any industry that's been using the same technology for 100 years, when you bring something new in, I went to a crime lab in Alabama demonstrating it to the director of the crime lab. And at, at this point, you know, it was – it's this device on a trailer taking it to labs to show them. And because when you try to upset the apple cart of an entire industry, you know, I forget who made the, um, was it Carl Sagan that said extraordinary claims require extraordinarily extraordinary evidence. I think it was Carl Sagan. And I had extraordinary evidence. I mean, I had in one instance, I had a crime lab director fire around into it, pull out the hollow point projectile. It was still so hot. He couldn't hold it. He looked at it. It was from his ammo, from his weapon. And he said, I know what I saw, but I still don't believe it. Walked away and slammed the door. What? So just because you have the best mousetrap doesn't mean success will come easy. You still have to, to fight for that success. Man. To make a long story short, that product later on went to be uh, went worldwide and had product representation in 53 countries. So did, it, this, did this product produce some mailbox money? This product, this product <laughs> produced uh, some mailbox money. It okay. um, and it, it's uh, put a lot of people in jail. Now, I was never, because being the inventor of the technology, I was told to be expected to call to be an expert witness in cases it was used in. But talking to my law enforcement contacts in GBI and, and FBI, they told me later on that if the defense team found out this technology was being used to prosecute the case, that they didn't really fight it mm. because there's no way to fight the results. Really? And it I, was that strong? It was that strong, and I was never called to testify. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So So – I guess I'm getting confused because the, the, the one time I was over at your museum, you had this like I want. I think it was like a rubber block. That's the bulletproof component. That's not the. That's not the thing you were just talking about. No, so what are the thing you were just talking about? The recovery thing. What did it? It wasn't water, but what did no, it look it was like? A, was it, a, it was a combination of different material in very specific densities and combinations that will take a high velocity rifle round like a five five six and stops it in about six feet, perfectly intact. A forty-five hollow point will stop. So it's like, is it, was it like a big block? No, it a was rubber a, too. No, it was no. contained inside of a metal box. They were two feet by two feet by eight feet long. Gotcha. Wheels about the size of your desk. It's yeah. square, and you just pushed it around and whatnot. Sweet. Yeah, uh, but it was used specifically to to solve firearms crimes and put bad guys in jail. Fifty different countries. Fifty-three. Fifty-three. Fifty-three different countries. And I, 
you you got to do do some traveling with that. I think well, you actually I, went and I did the the traveling I did with that the coolest traveling with that particular product. Most of the traveling was with the other one. Okay, but uh, and there was some cool traveling there. But with this product, the coolest traveling was the uh, Ecuadorian state police bought some for the entire country of Ecuador, and I spent a month in Quito, the capital of Ecuador, teaching their entire every officer they had of the state police had to use, use this it. technology. And that was pretty cool. Man, that was pretty cool. This was in the t- early 2000s. Ah, I'd have to go back and check, but somewhere in Jeez. that area. Yeah, it all runs together. I'm, I'm, I'm old. My brain goes, and I don't remember things. But. So all I know was about probably 10 years ago, I was at your museum, and you said, you want to see something cool? I said, sure. <laughs> and Ricky Ricky Robinson yeah, was there. Yeah, yeah, And we were there trying to trying to put a holographic site on my AR-15. And anyway, I stepped in this, like, garage-type space. There's this, like, I think it was like a rubber block it sitting was, there. Yeah, it was a block. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I see like this this like fully automatic belt fed. Yeah, it's a two forty nine saw machine gun, yeah. and you just blast off like I forgot how many hundreds of rounds into this block, yeah. and I'm like, okay, we're it, the block's still intact. It mm-hmm. looks don't look like it's even been shot. Right, it just like it just absorbed the it did. the bullet. So what was what was that thing about? And when did you invent that? And- <laughs> so that's a long story. That uh, that product actually exists because of a good friend of mine. That was in, everybody knows it as the movie Black Hawk Down, but actually we call it Operation Gothic Serpent. His name was Sean Nelson. So uh, Sean was a, a good friend of mine. He actually, years ago, was my Ducati mechanic. But, and Sean was not only in the real battle, but Sean is actually in the movie, and he was an advisor on the set. Uh, and there is a scene there. You know in the movie, the guy that goes deaf from shooting the M60? Mm-hmm. That's my buddy Sean. He went deaf for three days. Um, he, he shot the barrel out of his M60. I mean, they went through. It was that that was you know, 18, 20 hours of hell. But a bunch of guys got wounded because they didn't have any cover. There's one scene in the movie that he and his saw gunner are there, and they're taking. They're just hiding behind this pile of junk, and they're taking fire. You know, and, and the best thing we have until this came out was sandbags. Well, sandbags have been around for a hundred years, and the thing about a sandbag is, if you concentrate the fire on it, the sand pours out, and now you have no more protection. Man, Even if yeah. you have them stacked up three feet deep, right? You know, if you had enough twenty-two ammo, you could technically drill a hole in it because yeah. it's just going to pour out. And I thought, well, there's got to be a better way. You know, we were talking about mom and dad in Ridgewood. I grew up in Ridgewood, and, and the house is still there. It looks a little different now, but number eight Ridgedale Drive is where I grew up. And if you drive by there now, you'll see the the big shop to the left is where I used to keep all the motorcycles. But there's a little bitty shop between it and the house that was the lawnmower shop. The DPRS, the projectile recovery system, and this, the bulletproof composite, the, both of the initial testing was done in that building. Really? Now imagine wow. this. Here it is in the mid-90s, okay? Uh, yeah, Ridgewood. so your, your neighbors hate you? They did, because <laughs> I would have to roll the lawnmowers out. And at that time, I didn't own any fully automatic weapons. I didn't have the license. I had an, a semi-auto AR-15. And I would have to roll all the, the lawnmowers out and fire, you know, three, 400 rounds inside a lawnmower shop. In Ridge, serious? In, in the neighborhood? In, in, in Ridgewood. Absolutely. Da, 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 they, da, da, da. I mean, I'm assuming you had some cops called on you. I, I, the cops knew me. They used to hang out, you know, <laughs> they, at the museum and the the, uh, the um, oh man uh, hobby shop and all yeah. this. And, and I knew a lot of them. And a couple of times, the cops did show up and go, "Hey, what's going on?" And I said, "Look, I'm I'm there. Okay, can you tell us? No, okay." And, and that was it. And I guess they kind of told dispatch, "Hey, look, you know, we know this guy. He's not a lunatic. He's not shooting up the neighborhood. He's he's doing something legit." Okay. Now that was in the '90s. You probably couldn't do that today. Uh, they would ask you to politely to stop that. But right. in the 90s, it was a little different situation. But both those products were actually the initial testing of the initial material was in that building that's still there today in the middle of Ridgewood. Wow. <laughs> and so that, that material that you talked about, 
what what is the what is the point of that? It's just so you okay. can do some do some target practice. No, no, without, no, no. It was designed specifically for military applications. So, you know, like I said, sandbags and Hesco. You see Hesco bears in Afghanistan. So Hesco is basically just a big industrial sandbag. It's a six by six by about five feet tall sandbag. They fill it full of rocks and whatever. They and, can buy. and the sandbags are for protection. Yeah. So there's so, there's nothing that'll really stop huge volumes of fire, explosives, all this, and those products don't really attach together the if you remember the shape of that block it's like a it's like a one foot square lego so all of it it's it's, it's interlocking it's interlocking yeah the pattern for this is hanging on a wall it's the world's first interlocking three-dimensional protection system which is actually what it's called 3d ips and not only was it bulletproof and blast proof you could ram through it because when you locked all the blocks together it acted like a big you know that's perfect like, because then you got because you got humvees it could come at you sure you try sure, to just and just try to run over your barricade yeah your wall yeah they're called v-bits um and they would take, you know, they would armor bulldozers. This is, of course, Afghanistan, Iraq, all this. They would take uh, vehicles and fill them up with explosives. And then they got particularly nasty. They were actually putting it in cement mixtures. They were armoring bulldozers uh, and making B-bids out of those. So, yeah. Did you get to capture? I mean, this is happening, sounds like, after 9-11. Yeah, this was, uh, this was a little past that. I forget the exact date. You probably could have. If you could have, I mean, if you, if you would have been a few, year, few years oh, yeah. ahead of 9-11, you would have been probably sitting even on a yeah. bigger gold mine because well, you know how, how much yeah. security and money went into oh, hundreds of billions, hundreds of billions. And military. A lot, of it, a lot of it was on the black side, and we'll never know how much it was because you have two budgets, the public budget and the black budget. <laughs> right. And, and there's only about 12 people, and the majestic 12 guys, you know, whoever they are. They know about the black side of it. But it's, it's one of those things to where it took a lot to get the military's attention, but once you get their attention, you have their undivided attention. And the, the test that did that was stopping five RPGs, you know, an RPG, a standard RPG, the 7B warhead will burn through about 22 inches of steel. And then you have the RPG-29 Vampire, and you have all these various different, you know, types of RPGs. But typically the most common is the 7, and it just, as we see it over in, in uh, the war going on right now, everybody's got an RPG, they're like rocks. Right. And that, that warhead is designed to burn a hole through steel and blow up a tank, and they'll take out pretty much anything. But uh, what really got the government's attention is when we did a, a test with this material, and we marked out about an 8-inch by 8-inch area, and it stopped five RPGs in that 8-inch by 8-inch area in four inches. Man. At that point, my phone exploded. I had their undivided attention. Yeah, so is this – I know it's been, gosh, almost 20 years ago, but mm-hmm. are, is any of these products still in use? Has your patent ran up on it yet? So the patent has ran out, and the intellectual property has since changed hands. So it doesn't matter to me if the patent You sold it? Yeah, the patent is like, hi, you know, bike, bike away. So, <laughs> really? So, so I no longer own the IP. Uh, so, and it ran out, I think it was like eight months ago, something like that. But I, the, the IP changed hands years ago, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. So you got the patent that has a certain time and value, then you got the intellectual property that has a certain. That's the same thing. Oh, it's the, the same thing. The patent is the okay. intellectual property. Gotcha. Yeah, so, and what you want to do, like I said, is you want to make as much money as you can within that window of opportunity because after that, now, this is a little different. You'd have to have some very specialized, even if you had a block in your possession, you'd have to have some very specialized equipment to be able to know the the exact composition. You could break it down if you, if you, you know, Dow Chemical probably could. Right. But there's also some, uh, what we call the magic on the inside. Uh, there's some special stuff in there too, so, yeah. Man, so like, where do you, where do you even start? Like, where do you? To, to invent a block like that material, is this something you just went to like Ace Hardware and, and, and bought? You had to get some raw materials online. How do you even figure that out? Like, so the, was it even like, I mean, you, you, may, you may not be able to say, but 
There's some uh, of it that's still classified. I can't talk about. Although the the patent runs out, the classification does not. Okay. Uh, and you know, you ask about the different countries. So the other countries I've been to was because of that product. I was a guest of, of their country. I spent a month in Rio de Janeiro as a guest of the Brazilian government. I will never forget that. That I can talk about. There's some other countries I've been to, and some other things I've done, and, and locations and people I've worked with that I'll never be able to discuss. And a lot of those people don't exist. Neither mm-hmm. do the places we were at. But to, to go back to your question, so the very first test of this was, believe it or not, they make plastic, and I think it's made out of HDPE, which is high-density polyethylene. Um, same thing, the 55-gallon plastic drums are made out of. They make uh, cross-ties, plastic cross-ties. They make really? plastic decking, you know, and if you only use wood on your deck, you can use plastic. And I tried dozens of different materials, and one of them was weird. This, com- this company has since been out of business, but it came from a company down in South Georgia, and it was this weird bluish green, very hard block. And it was so hard that a forty-five round, because you test it with different calibers to test, you know, what will go in, what will not go in. And I was testing it with pistol calibers before I worked my way up to rifle calibers. The forty-five caliber round bounced off. Mm. So I called this company and I said, hey, man, what is this stuff? I'm getting, you know, I'm getting blowback here. And they goes, that is recycled baby diapers. What? Yeah. And I, at that point, I didn't want to pick it up anymore. <laughs> but it was, uh, and I don't know the process, but it took recycled baby diapers, and it was so hard that a forty-five, two hundred thirty-gram FMJ bounced off, which doesn't typically work for you know that. Right, you, yeah. you to, as you saw when you were there, there's no there's no ricochet; it absorbs it, so it has to be soft enough for everything to come in, but then it has to stay in. Right, and that's the trick. So you basically just you just started playing around with different materials and different materials, different worked. technologies, different combinations. I had I had a vision of what it needed to do. And then during that process, got in touch with Dow Chemical. I'm a ballistics guy. I'm not a chemist. And I brought in their lead chemist. Well, I was working, I mean, I was having meetings with the executive president of Dow on a regular basis, Dow Chemical. And, wow. you know, their engineers are there, their team. And, and about, about every week we had a phone call. And I said, okay, this is what it's doing. This is what I need it to do. And then they would send out a fresh batch of material and we test. And it went from a product on a napkin, which... The, the very first concept was literally drawn on a napkin at a country club in Atlanta to about three, three and a half years later, product on pallet. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a lot, of, a lot of business owners can take that same concept or, or entrepreneurs like as an entrepreneur and you got, you already got that like, um, you know, motivation instilled you, in you, you feel like you got to do it all and know it all, but no, you no. can delegate and, 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 and how, what's wrong with hiring somebody that, that, that right. can get you to where you want to be. Well, and you got a good point. The, one of the first things I tell people is this, and it, it, this applies to a lot of things in life, but in the entrepreneurship field and inventing, nobody knows everything. And I use a very simple phrase, teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah. Because without the team, you're not going to have the dream. You know, I'm not a chemist. I'm a I'm a ballistics guy. I'm a, you know I can't say I'm an engineer because I don't have a degree. I dropped out of high school and college, but I, I tend to lean more to that that side of things. Um, I don't know much about chemistry except you don't take sodium metal and throw it in a pool. You will no longer <laughs> right, have a pool. Right. But um, you bring in people that can help you, and typically in a situation, you know, if you you got two options, either you can hire them. Or you can give them a little slice of the pie. Right. Yeah. And say, hey, look, if you want to come on the team, I'll give you this percent. And then when this makes a trillion dollars, here's you do the numbers. Here's what your payout is. And a lot of times people show they, interest in that. They will. And it's worth it to them because they see the vision too. Sure, sure. If somebody's willing to either invest their time or money with you, should tell you you have a viable product, and that also should tell you that somebody downrange is going to buy it, and that's yeah. success. Yeah. So it sounds like that that those two inventions is really what sets you off. 
per se. That's I guess, kind of put, on, in, as far as the financial it put, financial world. It put me on this path, and you know, and it's weird now. It's it's instead of the the ballistic stuff now, the the new products are equine related, like farm farm yeah. horse related. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, a completely you know changing gears here, but I have learned that um, there is ridiculous money in the in the collective well, yeah, horse world. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you go to like Tractor Supply and you see the, all the horse farms and everything. It's like, man, it's a it's a big industry. And people will spend money on their horse before they will spend money on themselves. So the you know the thing about success is don't just concentrate on one industry. Go where the money is. If there's if there's a need in the equine industry, like the bucket, right? You know, feel that need. Uh, so it's it's come a long way from shooting an AR-15 in mom and dad's lawnmower shop. It really has. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. So, so what was your? Because I see all these cars on your on your Facebook page. What was like your first like expensive purchase? That would like, be the NSX. What is that? So the NSX is a in in America. It's under the the Halo brand of Acura, but it's technically a Honda. Uh, Honda right. designed it. Um, the NSX was and and still is today. Not the new one. The first gen NSX was so far above its time it was it was just a, a magical masterpiece of cars it had a the, the the engine was a v6 that made a respectable now this isn't back in the day you know this is in early 90s made a respectable 285 horsepower it had VTEC, which is variable valve timing mm-hmm. and lift electronic control titanium valves titanium conrods unheard of in a production car to, to put things in perspective for you this is a v6 okay and they were. It's just an extraordinarily exclusive car, and, and still are. Did now. they only make a certain amount of them? Well, it, it was, was weird. It? They they ramped up a factory at Tochigi to to make it, and Honda hired two hundred of the best car guys they had. You had to work at Honda for ten years, and then they only picked two hundred to build these. They're hand built. See, Honda builds. Honda's known for building mass production little little boxes, and they wanted to beat Ferrari at their own game. Mm. The, the the NSX was made out of aluminum. It was hand-assembled and hand-hammered. You can go back and search the old videos, and you see guys there just like they did with Lamborghini and Ferrari. I mean, they're hand-beating these aluminum panels to fit perfectly. They were making 25 cars a day. And for Honda, that is just ridiculous. Normally, they make 25 right. cars a yeah. second. You know, so and, and the performance of these cars, so to put things in perspective, when this car came out, it was going up head-to-head against the Ferrari Testarossa, which cost about one and a half or two times what it did, and more depending on the market. And they put them on a track. I forget the name of the track, but they, they put them head to head. And this this NSX is deficient on horsepower, and it cost you know a third as much, and it beat it by a second. Beat the Ferrari. Yes. Wow. Yes. And you you actually took ownership of one of these. I had an NSX, and I was an idiot. I I I, so, I traded it and my other house for a helicopter. Okay. And, and it, I should have kept Man. it because that car now has appreciated about five hundred percent. So now, you know, back then you could get NSXs all day long. I paid 25 for mine, and it had some mods done to it. Then I shipped it to Science of Speed and had some more mods done to it. When you, pay, when you say you paid 25000 25000 okay. back that, in the day. Back in the day, and that was, that was fair market. Now, a bone stock one runs you 100000 Wow. Bone stock. And they're upwards of 200000 now, depending on the year of the model. See, some, like one year they made like five with a tan interior and, and, and you know, all this and all that. But they're ridiculous. Anything decent is going to be over a hundred thousand. So you traded you traded that in for a helicopter. I traded that in my other house, the house in Ridgewood, uh, for a helicopter. 
Yeah. And do, do you still fly? Do you have? Did I, you ever get your your license? I or? do. Okay. I, I don't fly anymore. Uh, I sold the helicopter about two years ago. Uh, I wanted to kind of upgrade and build a, a build, not build buy a bigger one. That was a two seater. I'd All like right. to have something with five or seven seats, take friends flying, you know. Um, but I've landed at the house all the time. I'm, I'm the only, to my knowledge, based on what the county told me, I'm the only private residence in Floyd County with an FAA-approved helipad in the front yard. In your front yard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which part of Floyd County do you live in? South side of the county. South side, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I, like I was telling you earlier, I, my goal is to get my – my flying license, man, but it's it's not cheap. It's not. It's not cheap. I was so like shocked at how much they charge, you know, per hour to give lessons in a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And the helicopter that I was training in was a was a Robinson Forty Four, mm-hmm. and that's that's it's got a lot of room, but they want to charge more for that chopper versus like the smaller Twenty Two. Yeah. But in the in the Twenty Two, man, I was oh. I was all crunched up. And oh yeah, you're a big dude, man. You be touching shoulders between <laughs> me and the me and the uh, the instructor. We oh, yeah. were yeah. we were crammed in there. And he couldn't even put a full tank of gas in it because no. we were almost over the weight limit so yes. he's like you might want to think about upgrading to the 44 the 44 but it costs it costs more money much. it's like it's like four or five hundred bucks an hour man it is yes and i'm like it's such such a cool dream of mine i'm, I'm gonna make it happen somehow but i do i do want to i do admire you for that man that's that's awesome it's so, believe it or not it's cheaper it, depending on what you want to do with it and how often you want to fly it's cheaper to own it because see on mine mine was a two-seater it's a schweitzer 300 cb my actual operational cost was about 140 an hour just to operate it. just to operate it so it's a whole lot cheaper to own it now you have insurance and you have maintenance and all this other stuff right. but you know your actual what we call consumables your fuel your oil all this and you're not really counting time on the components and depending on how you run the numbers you either do or don't your total operational cost includes time on the components because eventually they'll time out and you have to replace them so. and you know right here in rome there's an airport mm-hmm. and that's what is is so unfortunate for me is i'm like we have this awesome airport but nobody really does anything with helicopters out of this airport unless i'm unless i don't know about them no the nearest one was actually my instructor up in calhoun Ron yep. dobbs yep. yep i've I've heard of him yep. but it's a shame that nobody has really t- right you know took off with the helicopter stuff here in rome i'm thinking there, there could be a market for it maybe maybe that's waiting for me maybe it's there's money I, to be made there is because the company i was um taking lessons from out of atlanta mm-hmm. um prestige helicopter yeah, yeah, I know yeah yep um you know he stays so busy with doing like uh, surveying sure. uh tours tours, tours uh, flights, uh, weddings yeah, yeah. uh gen- they're they're even in the gender reveals now man oh, yeah. where they'll drop yeah. the, the the smoke from the chopper yeah uh seems like a lot of avenues you could take to keep that chopper making money the thing about helicopters is the only time it's making money is when the rotors are spinning right if they're not spinning it's costing money because insurance on mine was 800 bucks a month you know, if, if you don't have a place to keep it, like, you know, I keep it at the house, it doesn't cost me anything. You have a hangar, that's through $400 a month hangar rent. If there's one available, right now there's a year. Down in Cartersville, at the Cartersville Airport right now, there's a seven-year wait for hangars. Seven-year wait. Yeah, so it, it, it can be very expensive uh, if you don't have a place to keep it, and then you have your maintenance. And uh, yeah. I would definitely have to go into it as a way to, well, I say this now, but maybe I'll get to a point later on where I can just have one for for personal use but i would like to be able to make some money with it not only for that but for sure. tax reasons too you well, know let your let your chopper be a, a business a business LLC. so you can you yeah. know have yeah. some tax breaks there well that way your, your maintenance your consumables your all that can be deductible um because it's all part of the operational cost and expense of the aircraft what would be wrong with me um let's just in theory say i buy a, a used chopper and i want to go just take off to to visit other shopping centers to think about uh, opening a second uh, mm-hmm. or a, other smoothie nutrition shop locations mm-hmm. 
that's that's that, that whole trip's a write-off because it, it's business it is, related. It is the only thing on that you'd have to make sure you check the box of is the thing with helicopters is you if it's not your private property you have to have permission to land on other private property. So if, as long as you had permission to land from whoever owned that property to go check put in a store there, you're great. So okay. basically what it does, you have to ask yourself, and it's like owning a private jet. People say jets are expensive. Well, that depends. What's your time worth? You know, a jet's not oh. that expensive. You can, the, the Lambo I used to have, they have appreciated so much that right now they're the same price as a Learjet. So I could have that car. I could have a Learjet. What's your time worth? Well, you're, you're reminding me of, uh, I follow a guy named Grant Cardone mm-hmm. uh, on the social media world, and he's, he's the same, same thing. He's in real estate. Yeah. A lot of people think he was he was crazy for purchasing a, a private jet, but he's like, man, in the time I yes, in the time you're you're playing around with emails and, mm-hmm. and thinking about going and looking at a property and hep, hopping on a, a you know regular flight, yeah. I've done I've done got there and bought it. The deal's and done. Checked it out. The deal's done. Right. The disadvantage of a jet is you can't land at the property. You have to have an airport and you have True. to get a car and all the 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 disadvantage of a helicopter is it's slower, but you can land outside. Speaking of helicopters, a lot of people when I told them I was pursuing that they they were like well why helicopters you know most people do fixed wing i, I just love helicopters i think they're just a, a badass machine they are they, they the fact that you can land anywhere in a field or on top of a building or still do. they just they're just all the way they sound sure. Sure. I, I just love them i just absolutely <laughs> that's a huey he's, know, he's, he's, he's pointing at a t-shirt <laughs> over here love it, i got this t-shirt um at the uh the air show mm-hmm uh, last year they were given rides in the in yep. the Huey. I've been in it. Yeah. And that was my first time. I wasn't I wasn't even expecting that. Mm-hmm. I actually was shocked and I got my girlfriend on it. Yeah. And these guys were so great. The doors were off. Oh yeah. They were Vietnam guys. Yeah. And they just had fun with it, man. Like yeah. we got up there and they were taking us around our merchy. Oh yeah, over and, and all that. Yeah. They yeah. actually took this thing and got it oh, on yeah. like a, a good little G force roll. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. my stomach oh, was yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, these guys are are, are having fun with it versus like doing everything by the book. Oh yeah. Keep yeah. It they're safe. all combat pilots. Yeah, they're man. They know what they're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's like the, you know, a Huey, I would love to have a Huey, but a Huey's a million bucks up front. They're about 1800 bucks an hour to operate and your insurance is going to be 60 grand a year. So you got to ask yourself, okay, do I need to spend that money on a toy or do I need to spend that on another aviation asset that will generate revenue? Right. Like a jet or a business helicopter or whatnot. Yep. Because, you know, those guys are 501c3, so that's yes. different. Yep. But if you have an aircraft based in your LLC, whatnot, and you use it for business purposes, then all of a sudden you got a tax deduction. Yeah. So. And then you got, you got, what's the difference between a Huey and a Blackhawk? A lot. A lot. Okay. A lot. Okay. Yes. The Huey is 60s era and the Blackhawk is, is 80s technology. I mean, we still use them today. They're just now figuring out what they're going to replace it with. Okay. But, you know, the Blackhawk is twin engine. It's much faster. It's much more powerful. It's multi-blade rotor head. That is the, the unicorn of all helicopters. Yeah, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous. I mean, we use it like 30 different countries use it. Um, and you can buy them. You can buy a surplus Blackhawk. Um, they're about six or seven million, and then about five thousand. You just take flight. off. You would just have to take off all the military. No, you can buy it ready. You turn the key. The, wow. the, the shops over near Fort Rucker, they sell them. They'll they basically just refurb it, and they'll go through the aircraft and anything that's that's got some time on it. They'll zero time the aircraft, and that's why you're paying six seven million dollars for it. And you'll have to put the, the the wording on the side that says for experimental it's, purposes only or something like yeah, that to get it to get it insured. Yeah, yeah I think it, that's what the Huey had on yeah, the side. Experimental, um, yeah. and then at that point you can give you know rides and things in it. But to, and those are probably what we call Alpha Chuck models. There, um, I, I doubt there's any Mike models in there. There may be some Mike models, but that aircraft you're looking at five six thousand an hour to operate. Jeez. It's ridiculous, and then yeah. you know your insurance on it. My goodness, what would that be? So yeah, so um, I, I do want to keep on pursuing my my flying license um i, I may i may 
pursue it in in Calhoun since it's right off the road a little bit easier commute than going to Atlanta. Ron's to, a good guy to see Mike. So if you if you go up there and you take training in the helicopter that's November two zero three six Mike, that's my old one. Okay, that's the one I used to. A little Swatzer. Yeah. Yeah, that's one I, I use. That's on. what he uses. Yeah. It's, it's got to be. Yeah. It looks very. It looks smaller than the R twenty two. It's actually got a lot more room. It's got a lot and more room. There, he's telling me. I've never. I've never flew in anything but a Robinson. But he's telling me, and you, you tell me if you agree with him. But he's telling me the Swatzer, the one you're talking about, is a little bit easier and safer because it's, it's both. It's, it's both. Okay. So it is. It's easier because it's not nearly as twitchy. You got a fully articulated rotor system. It's a three blade. You know, on the 22, and I did a little training in the 22, if you just think about moving your hand, the helicopter's moving. Yeah. The Switzer has a conventional military-type cyclic grip, and, you know, you have to do cyclic displacement an inch or two to get a response out of the rotor system. Now, they're a little – they're very nimble. They'll do what you ask them to. Right. But another advantage of the Switzer is it, with that multi-blade system and you have the fully articulated rotor, you don't have to worry about – Mass bumping. And ripping the rotor off. That's exactly yep. right. So it's much safer. It was originally designed by Howard Hughes' team in the 50s. It was the, the military version is called a TH-55, and it was designed to be beat to pieces by brand-new Army aviators. That's what they took primary in at Fort Walters and Fort Rucker. All of your Vietnam pilots, they trained in those. That's what they, they cut your teeth on. Hmm. So it was designed to be beat up pretty good. Okay. It's much, much yeah. safer than the R-22, particularly in a crash. Right. Much safer. I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want Robinson coming after me, but it's well known what they do when you crash them. They burn. That's well known. That's that's I'm saying what is public knowledge. They burn. Even a survivable crash, if it tips over, they burn. Man. So but the Switzer, which is why I picked it over the other helicopters, it's designed to be, you know, beat up by military students. And it's it's about the same speed as an R twenty two, but it's much wider, much more comfortable. Ron's a big guy. I'm not a big guy, but Ron's kind of a big stocky guy. And we had plenty of room left. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's got good range. B&E's 94 knots, so you're looking at 105, 106 mile-an-hour top speed. Yeah. We're just cruising around having a good time. You can't beat it. Yeah, I love it, man. And back on the, the Ferrari thing, I was going to ask you, all I know is Ferraris are expensive. But, yeah. like, what, what in your opinion, what makes – what makes a Ferrari so expensive? Is it how it's made? Is it is it in my in my opinion? You know, and a lot of people they think, oh, well, you're just you're they're just slapping on a logo, and you're you're it's no different than a a Mustang. So like the Ford, you know, GT Mustang. Like what's what truly makes a Ferrari a a Ferrari a Ferrari and cost so much? Okay, so you when you go to buy uh, exotic cars, and you talk about maintenance. So here's an example. I'll just I'll just back up just a moment. So like on my Ferrari now, a service is about. A big service is like three grand. On the Lamborghini I used to have, that Diablo Roadster VT, the 30,000-mile service. And this is what I caution people. They come into a bunch of money and say they want to buy cars. I'm like, that's fine. They're like helicopters. Buying them is the cheap part. The 30,000-mile service, if you go to my Facebook page, that's Silver Lambo. That's it. it, I needed a clutch and a 30,000-mile service, and it was $27,000. Why is that? Is that somebody just ripping you off? No, it's it's they're very specialized parts. You can only get the parts. So it's legit. They, it's they, legit. Okay, they're yeah. not just like yeah. taking people. And it's labor rate. You know, you're not paying thirty dollars an hour for somebody to work on your half million dollar car. Right. They're yeah. not making thirty dollars an hour. And the vast majority of these services is labor. The parts are not bad. I had replaced the the brakes on the Ferrari not too long ago, and it was six hundred bucks parts and labor. The vast majority of it is you are getting factory-trained technicians. Wade Williams that works at Merlin Auto Group is the only guy that touches my stuff, period. He's so good that the antique Ferraris that comes in there, done it, Merlin, he makes the parts. Gotcha. I mean, if, the, if you can't buy them, he makes them. I've watched him make parts for a steering box for a 308, the Magnum Ferrari 308 you know, that he drove. Yeah. He was making part of the steering box because you can't find them anymore. So you're paying for the expertise of the technician. 
But you, when it comes to buying exotic cars, you can do two things. You can go buy a brand new one and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're paying for what it costs to make the car. Right. Or you can buy a used one and you're paying for what the car's worth. But then if you buy a used one, you're probably gonna you are probably gonna inherit some problems or not, maintenance. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. And and here's why I always caution people, particularly in the, the finicky, the early Ferraris, the three oh eights, the three twenty eights, they had some maintenance issues. The new ones, they're fine. But and you, you talked about comparing it to a Mustang. So, for instance, here's here's a good example. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys that, that have Mustangs and I have nothing against I used to have one. You know, they're yeah. not, not my kind of car, but if you think of it this way. So, if you take the, the average Mustang driving around Rome. Now, this is not talking about price. It's talking about performance, okay? So, if you go get a, a 488, um, you're making – so, that the Ferrari would weigh about 2,500 pounds less and make two or 300 horsepower more. Gotcha. The law of physics are self-enforcing. Okay, so it's more, way way more than just slapping on a it's logo. Way more car. than this, and the, the technology <laughs> in these cars, and you're right. you're paying for the craftsmanship. Like a, a brand new Rolls Royce Phantom is seven hundred thousand. A Bentley GTC is three hundred and fifty thousand, nicely optioned, because everything is hand built. Gotcha. The sti- the the seats are hand stitched. If you order the the Mulliner cross stitch option on your Bentley, I've actually seen the videos of the ladies that do it. It takes them three days to hand stitch the seats. You're paying their their wages. Gotcha. So, the so best, there's some actual craftsmanship. And there is legit. The dash on a Bentley. The the um, I, I picked me out a Bentley GTC. I, they're a year out on order, so it'll be a while before it gets here. But um, the dash, it's all hand done in wood. All that that. It takes dozens of hours to make each one of those wood pieces that are done by hand. So you're not just paying, like on the Lambo, the Raging Bull, you're not paying $600,000 for that emblem. The the Diablos, they were all hand-built. The engine were hand-built. And it's just the the passion and the craftsmanship. Yes, you can go buy a Mustang or a Corvette and have a fast car. Not a problem. The the new Corvettes look sharp. I, I think they ripped off Ferrari. They did, and they admitted that. They, I mean, they literally admitted that they copied the botting style. That looks just like a, that's, almost like a Corvette right there on that wall right there. So that's a 488 on your wall. The version okay. before that is the 458, and that's what they copied. They copied the body style, and even their engineers admitted that they bought one of their engines off eBay and started copying the technology. I'm assuming they earned a lawsuit? No. No? No. I mean, you, you can buy an, a Ferrari engine off eBay and do what you want. But um, Ferrari's not suing Corvette for copying their design? They, they changed some things. But so they, as long as it's not exact, exactly, you can get away with it. But they based the architecture. You know, it's so what Corvette is talking about now is it has a flat plane crank. Okay, well, and 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 they're you know I'm not knocking Chevrolet here, so don't send your lawyers after me. But they're saying that it's a big deal that they put a flat plane crank in this new Corvette. Well, that's great. Ferrari had flat plane cranks in the '80s, and they've been using them ever since. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> to me, what to me what Corvette did was you know a little a little wrong for cop you know. They admitted closely copying, copying but yeah. it's kind of genius because they basically gave uh, a lot more affordable Ferrari to they did. The, the working man. And from you know? a from a business standpoint, <laughs> so. you know, since we're talking about business today, it makes sense because here and I'm again not making bad comments about anybody, but your Ferrari owner typically your passionate Ferrari owner is not going to buy a Corvette, and your typical Corvette owner either cannot or will not buy a Ferrari. So what they did is, and I've, I've watched a lot of videos on this because I find the car to be intriguing, and what they did was intriguing. They went, look, we're missing a market segment. Yes. We've got the American consumer that doesn't want to spend 250 350 450 on a Ferrari, but they want to have something, close, nicer, something nicer and close to per Ferrari performance, and we can get it to them for 100 
Wow. And the market's there, and the demand is there. Yes. I mean, they can't make them fast enough. No. So good on them for doing that. Uh, but they did, in fact, blatantly state that they copied for yeah, it's sharp, man. That's a sharp looking <laughs> a car. Looking I car. saw one parked out in front of the shop the other day, and I'm like, I just, we're just going to keep looking at it. I'm they're like, nice. It looks, it looks sharp. Yes, and their their engines. I've had a couple issues with the engines too. Have blown up already, which is really not good. But they've no. they've had two lunch under the 600 mile break in, um, and and thankfully GM is doing what it needs to do and cover that. Uh, but you know, and you ask about Ferrari, you're getting the you're getting the racing history, the the pedigree. You okay. know, you know, yep. you're you're buying a piece of automotive history. You're buying, you're buying a um, – I was just detailing engine bay in mine yesterday. Uh, I'd use Q-tips to detail the whole car. You're buying passion. You're, you're buying something that somebody hand-built. There's no robots and doing all this stuff, you know. You're buying passion. So is it expensive? Yes. But here's the thing. You know, it's just like the, the, the Ferrari, the Lambo, the NSX, pick your car. Your Mustang, Corvette, pick your car. Regardless of how much that car costs. If you're up in the mountains and you've got the top down and you, you know, they come with stereos, but I don't use them because I'd rather hear the exhaust that I've yeah. for. It's worth every penny. And and that's the beauty of this living in the greatest country on earth. It's whatever makes you happy. You know, you can justify however much it costs. That's hard to justify, you know, 12 million for a Bugatti, but that's okay. Um, and that's, that's another story entirely. But, you know, you, if you feel good about that purchase, good for you. Yeah. You know, because it's all about, um, enjoying the car uh it's just like a, a rolls royce you know they're hand built in goodwood um the the seats are you now granted that you're you're paying bmw for their takeover of rolls royce you know if somebody this money's going somewhere but you're buying technology and you're buying craftsmanship now do i advocate spending seven hundred thousand dollars on a car well, that depends on your bank account you know <laughs> yeah so yeah I, I, i'm not a super materialistic person i'll you know I like nice things, but it's not like I don't put it like number one priority. But right, right. that I, that is kind of a goal of mine. Mm-hmm. And you know, spending three or four hundred thousand dollars on a, on a Ferrari like that, uh, I would I would like to see happen. Uh, you you may tell me maintenance on it's going to be a it's not bad. Okay, uh, on that on what you have up there is actually a four eighty eight, and you can get those now for you get the spider version, which is the hard top convertible for about two fifty. Um, and your your maintenance on that, unless you you know burn through a clutch or something, you're looking at about a thousand bucks a year. And we're we're, we're pointing at my vision board. I was, I was showing Leslie my my vision board. Allie's got one too. But if you guys, uh, I'm real big on manifesting thoughts and ideas, and either writing it out in a diary or or putting it on a board. So make yourself a, a vision board. Like it can it can be even just something silly. But mine's got like beach house and the helicopter and a guy on his laptop on the beach. Mm-hmm. A uh, little little mailbox with cash in it. That's I want right. to I want to be able to get to a point in my life where <laughs> I'm not having to 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 spend a lot of time of my time making money. I just got some passive income coming in, you know, from different different angles. Mailbox money. Mailbox money. Yep. And it's got the Ferrari up there. So yeah, I'm real. I'm I'm a I'm a dreamer, and um, I like to slowly start seeing some check marks in go. those boxes. I got some goals <laughs> I want to hit by the time I'm you know 40 and mm-hmm. 50. I'll be I'll be 39 this year. We so. really okay. So yeah, I got some goals. Um, this is a, this is going to go. I know we're already, we're already past an hour, but um, I think our listeners would like to hear your opinion on this, and so will I. And I don't want to open another can of worms with this, <laughs> and maybe we can keep it in in uh, in a box in a box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in recent events, I, I just want to know because I've seen you. I've seen you mention it on Facebook. Okay, what's what's up with these crazy balloons, man? I don't understand. I saw the first one come over. It floated around for like three or four days. Right. It's like, oh, we're going to watch it and make sure, you know, we know it's here. I'm like, 
Yeah. Some just don't feel right about that, man. So let me preface this conversation by saying I have no political affiliation. So I'm yeah, not, I don't, don't want to get political. I'm not picking on any party. I don't you know, want to get. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not picking on any party. I'm just going to tell you because I have, I have both open source information and with my contacts, I have not open source information. So the one that was shot down off the coast was obviously a, a very large Chinese spy balloon, and it's one of many. They've been seen all over the world. Um, that's just the first one that, you know, and it's funny that 20 years ago, that thing could have passed over and it wouldn't have been a great big deal. The The government may have known about it, but they would have just kind of let it go. What stirred this up with social media? It was so big. Now, it was at 65,000 feet. You could still see you it. You could see it. People were blowing up social media going, oh, it's a UFO. And it's, it's over, you know, Alaska and it's coming down over the Aleutians and all this. And at this point, the government's like, well, we have to invest. So it's much bigger than a hot air balloon. It's the, the actual balloon was approximately 200 feet. Whoa. And the cargo bay under it where all the electronic equipment was, which was, in fact, surveillance equipment. It was what we call SIGNET and ELINT uh, signal intelligence. And it's, it's, it's picking up radio signals, and it's gathering intelligence. And it just happened to go over, you know, North Dakota and all the areas where the, the, the ICBMs are, which is a bit of a naughty. And it was controllable. It wasn't just a free flight balloon. They, they saw it change course. It had motors on it. Mm. So, you know, we shot it down, and we recovered the technology. And it was, in fact, a spy balloon. The and I want to go back a minute. You know, the I'm a firm believer, a firm believer in extraterrestrials. They've been here for millions of years. There is documented proof in ancient carvings. There's documented proof in in, in various countries' scriptures. You know, whatever you want to call it, um, they've been here. You know, we're we're kind of the and I, I believe that too. I, I would I would I would like to personally see. Or have an encounter, sure, you know, where sure. I can still live and walk away from it. But I always thought it'd be cool to a lot of people witness have. it. A lot of people yeah. have have been in, in in their presence. So to, I say all that to say this. Um, you know, the Navy has recently released here, and I, I think they're slowly getting accustomed, getting the American people accustomed to. Because if you just came out and say, "Hey, we've been talking to aliens for sixty years," it'd be War of the Worlds all over again. People would be throwing <laughs> right. their TVs out of windows, they'd be jumping out of windows. So you can't do that. So this has been a slow but steady incremental release of information. And the, the Tic Tac incident off the Nimitz, which everybody knows about, has been on YouTube. Um, you know, those obviously was technology that's not from here. It was one particular incident that wasn't on that particular video. But the, uh, the GS radar system tracked, I think it was eight or ten objects. They were at 65,000 feet doing 130 knots, okay? And when they sent an F-18 to intercept them, they went from 65,000 feet to 500 feet in seven-tenths of a second. Uh, wow. So that would be, you know, 5,000 negative Gs. These are like, these are like They're little orbs. Yeah. We can't do that. We don't have anything that can remotely do that. So the object that was shot down off the coast, that was obviously a Chinese spy balloon. If you've noticed, however, the objects that were shot down, the, the later objects, they quit talking about. And the reason they quit talking about that is and there was one object in particular that the fighter pilot described it thusly. A cylindrical object with no visible means of propulsion or aerodynamic control. Now, that's the guy who saw it. Yeah. And I'm sure he's since been told to shut up. But that is what he saw. And if you if you look at a lot of the, now they're called UAPs, that's the new buzzword instead of UFO, that's what the government calls them. There's a lot of cylindrical ones. We've had a rash of UFO sightings lately. Um, you know, you're not going to go out and, and tell the American public, we shot down an alien probe. That's just not what you do. Do I believe the other ones were balloons? Absolutely not. Wow. Absolutely not. The one off the coast was a balloon. The other ones, you, you can always tell there's some something more to a news story when it's real big and then it goes away. Right. It's what they're not saying that should concern you, not what they are saying. 
Man. And the last story that they published on that to kind of cover it up is they said, uh, and I'm not sure where this came from, but I've got a pretty good idea somewhere up in, in the beltway there. They said, oh, we shot down some hobby club's uh, balloon. Hmm. So that's what they wrapped it up as. They wrapped it up as a as a science club's hobby balloon because the pilot said it's about <laughs> the size of an SUV. I mean, or, not an SUV, an ATV. So think about this. If you And it was only 20,000 feet. Now, that is a hazard to navigation for aircraft. Right. But and this and the the um, the military just released an image last week of a silver orb flying very fast over the battlefields of Iraq that one of their surveillance planes caught. You know, there are a lot of orbs. They're, they're called fast walkers. They, we catch them all the time. Some guy caught one on his drone filming somewhere. It's about the size of a football. We saw those flying over Iraq. They're not ours. And here's what's peculiar: you being in aviation, you'll appreciate this, and all our listeners that are familiar with aviation, you'll appreciate this. Civilians, NASA, the military, there's various entities that have recorded these orbs going extremely fast. And they're very low. They're under, mm-hmm. you know, 2,500 feet. They're going Mach 5, Mach 6, okay? There is no acoustic signature. There's no sonic boom, mm-hmm. which from a scientific standpoint says they're not interacting with the atmosphere. Because mm-hmm. when you're going through the atmosphere at Mach 5, you're displacing the atmosphere, which would cause a sonic boom right. everywhere you went. Of every recording, every taken. And they're flying over people's heads. There's no sonic boom. Dang. Now to my, I can't wrap my brain around that. How do you how do you get through the atmosphere without moving the atmosphere? Yeah. But there's no sonic boom. So just based off what you just said, I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what? Okay, I get I get the one legit mm-hmm. Chinese spy balloon, but mm-hmm. then the other ones could, could have been like aliens or UFOs. But what... How do you make sense of that? And what was why was all that going on at one time in the course of a couple of weeks? I mean, no, that's the, that's the weird thing. That's the main another question is, you know, there's there's been a rash of sightings of craft. I'll use the term craft, which is actually how they they define it a craft that that we cannot quantify. It, I don't believe half what I see on the media. I, I don't. I learned that from you know working with governments. You just they're going to put out what they want the public to know. And they're not going to come out and say, hey, we shot down E.T. They're not going to do that. Drew Barrymore would get pissed if we said we shot down E.T. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where they're not going to tell us. Yeah, because I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, why would why would the Chinese send over a balloon with cameras to, to, to quote, spy? Are they are they surveying land? Are they look, look land shopping? No, the problem are with they, that, here's, I mean, here's, the, here's the, in my opinion, and this is just like, my opinion, there's, here's the reason they did that. I think it's a dry run. And here's what I mean by that. So that balloon was between 63 and 65,000 feet. It was above the service ceiling of the F-22. He had to shoot that missile up. There was about a six, 7,000-foot discrepancy between his service ceiling and the height of the balloon. And balloons can go from 60,000 feet, depending on the size, to about 150,000 feet, depending on size and payload capacity Jeez. and whatnot. But what concerns me more than anything, and, and our near-peer adversary is not Russia, it's China. That is the the... The new world threat is China, and it's kind of funny not to get political here, but, you know, nobody cares about Russia. We can sanction them. Everybody has sanctioned them. We don't need them. China is sanction-proof. If you go to Walmart, everything's made in China. Half the parts in your car are made in China. Ninety-five percent of all the, the microchips and semiconductors and all that, they're made in Taiwan. So they, they, China's got it on lockdown, man. China has it on lockdown. Globally. So they're sanction-proof, and they know that. So the, what concerns me about that particular dry run, and they've done this to a lot of other countries, now that that one has popped up, other countries are going, wait a minute, we had that happen to us. The, that is the perfect scenario for an EMP. 
and that for listeners that don't know what an EMP is, I think I'm, it's, the, it's where you can basically put off like a silent bomb and it's it makes all electronics go out. Well, it's or not something. silent. It's, it's, not, not, it's <laughs> nuclear. Okay. It's not silent. It's a, an EMP is an electromagnetic pulse. And okay. you get an electromagnetic pulse from a nuclear bomb. So if you detonate a nuke high in the air, you get that EMP that, that originates in, it, from that point of detonation omnidirectionally. And it will fry Anything oh. and everything electronically. That's why Air Force One is hardened against EMPs. Dang. That's why your your uh, NORAD and all that is underground to harden it against EMPs. It fries everything. Vehicles, done. Computers, done. Um, and if it's strong enough, it can actually set power lines on fire. So, and there, and there, and there, our government was letting this thing fly over for a few days, knowing it could have had a, a EMP. It, at that point, we didn't know. And and based on the information I received from some of my sources, so that that balloon had energetic material which is in military speak for explosives a self-destruct mechanism according to the information i've received when we picked it up coming over the country number one they didn't want to shoot it down then because of, of danger to personal property right i get that i get that but they jammed it and when they jammed it they, they realized there was some some signet stuff going on so they jammed it which meant two things it meant whatever it was trying to send back to china it, it couldn't and it also meant that if china tried to send the self-destruct signal it couldn't so wow. they basically just let this thing come over the country. And then when it got, and we only have, here's what's funny. We only have that, the 12 mile border off the coast. And after that, it's international waters. We don't really have any jurisdiction to start shooting things down in international waters. You have to do it in the 12 mile territorial water limit. Mm. So they had to act pretty quickly. 12 miles is not that far. So you're saying the word jam, that's, that's like a, a thing that you can do to block signals going yes. back and forth. That's, that's like a real thing. It was. How, how do you jam something? <laughs> that's above my head. Okay. But that, that device, there was 2,000 pounds of equipment hanging under that balloon. Right, yeah. And we've captured, I say captured, we've got most of it off the seafloor. It was only 45 feet deep where it landed, so that's pretty advantageous. But it was, it was a spy balloon. Man. No doubt it was a spy balloon. That's scary, man. I know we could talk about that for a lot longer and you know conspiracy theories and you could you could really drown yourself in fear about what could come you know i mean people has been thinking the world's going to end for decades and right. and i and this ain't the first time i've heard of emp mm-hmm. you know like yeah. i know that's a real thing it, it could is. happen i mean to me if if you're gonna totally just disrupt a country that would be how i would i would do it if i was evil you shut it down there's no commo there's no power there's no transportation i mean um, you'd lock a country down that's bad it is bad i mean i just that just, you know, as much as I would like to prepare for something like that, I don't know if you, you could prepare. I mean, because you don't know where you're going to be when it happens. You don't know. Here's what I, back when I used to teach some of the classes at the shop, you can build a Faraday shield, which is basically an electronic shield um, that will go around sensitive electronic components. And I always tell people, if you want a a standby vehicle, get something that's carbureted like my old deuce and half. I've got a 66 deuce. It's an old school car. Just get an old school diesel, old school car that doesn't have any electronics. At least you got transportation. At least you got transportation. That's a good idea. Yeah, you know, I like get that. Get a, a four-wheeler, anything that, you know, keep a four-wheeler under a metal shed. Well, there's your Faraday shield. So, like my old 66 deuce is a multi-fuel engine. If I had to, I could go out with a screwdriver and jump the starter off. I've got transportation. Would would planes fall out of the sky if that happened? I don't know how. With that the, would be with terrible. the metal skin, it would be mer- terrible. With the metal skin around the airplane, I don't know how the EMP would interact with the controls in there. Gotcha. Uh, the navigation and all that. You know, um, I mean, you're talking 
And then not to mention the radioactive fallout from a nuke going off five miles high. Right. That's not going to be healthy. No. So, (laughs) Yeah, depending on what area they do it in. Exactly. And it hits the jet stream, and now it goes. I mean, like when when Fukushima melted down and Chernobyl melted down, we had measurable uh, contaminants off the coast. So it doesn't just hang out in a local area. Yeah, man. Well, cool. Well, if if you had to give, um, we'll wrap it up with this question. If you had to give listeners any kind of advice as far as you know, if they're if they're in, in, a, in a situation where they're 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 wanting more out of life, they have this desire to you know do something bigger in life instead of just working in the the oil pit. Mm-hmm. You know, they have some ideas, but they're afraid they're, they don't really know where to go forward. Obviously, you you offer services I do. for that. I do, yeah. You know, what would you what would you say to that? That, that person that, that has those desires to they, maybe they got a good idea or they're they just if they, they think it's going to cost too much money you know who was going to listen to me right um, well and it's just like you discussed earlier one of the most valuable patents is the little plastic clamps on your shoestrings yeah. you know so number one a lot of people will listen to you if you have number one a good idea if you present it professionally and you sound like you know what you're talking about so when you create a technology or you create a a product you are the sme you are the subject matter expert on that product so somebody's going to take you seriously you know if you're a little local and you want to come talk to me i'll be happy to help you um again it's on facebook and mention consultation services i you know I, I i can talk over the phone you know if you don't live local seek professional help don't don't give your idea away find somebody that can yeah. help you and if you can't if you think you can't afford it then i ask you this so do you want to eat be able to eat out back, you know, every day for a month, wasting your money on that, or do you want to sacrifice and have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a month and save that money, and then get a patent attorney, and then you know be able to buy out back two years from now. There you go, and that's that's a good point because I I often ask people, you know, what's what's the risk of you not taking the risk, right? You know, if you know what if you stay where you're at for the next five years, mm-hmm. what's it going to look like if you didn't move forward with that that goal or that idea? Absolutely. I love that. I love that thought. It's always worth the risk. I mean, it, worst case scenario, absolute worst case scenario, if you hire a patent attorney to do a patentability search, you're out 1500 bucks. Well, if you think, you know, if you go out with your friends or you go to, you go have dinner and drinks with a few times. Over the course of a month, it adds you, up. You've blown $1,500. Yep. And, and now you don't have your patentability search back yet. <laughs> so change your priorities temporarily to focus on success. And, and success is not... You know, going out, blowing. If you got plenty of money, do what you want to. But if you if you're a little tight on funds, and you have an idea you think could be very successful, you need to prioritize your financial uh, expenses towards the success of this product. Whether you used to eat steak, you know, go to Crystal, go to right. McDonald's, whatever, and and make those sacrifices until this hits the market, and then you can have a steak three times a day. I also read a saying that says if you don't sacrifice for your goals then your your goals and dreams become the sacrifice they do and they, yeah. they will every single time every single time every single time so you know first thing figure out what you want to do if you think you have a viable product then by all means talk to the right people yeah. and you have a couple of, you have a page on facebook that people can kind of keep up with you you got your personal page I have and a personal you got page. another one that's what's I, it called oh i have i have like five pages it's silly i have more more uh social media than a teenage girl it's crazy um, so I have my, my personal page and then I have, uh, invention consultation services and that's basically for helping folks with new ideas. And then the car page is called the Duke collection that shows all the toys. And then yeah, that's the, so cool. 
Got a, got a, had a few new uh, cool toys, and then the uh, the Duke Museum of Military History, which is kind of the museum stuff I do, the military side. And then I also, on top of all that, I also do training for the United States Department of Defense, uh, farms training for the Army and Marine Corps. And the name of that page, to keep up with all that, is OP4OP-FOR Weapons LLC. Man, I, I, I predict a second session with you because I just, I feel like we're just now getting started, man. That's fine. That's so, fine. Uh, but that's, I think that's going to wrap up today's episode and I, I appreciate you have, having you on and, you know, you coming and, and join us. It's and, been fun. It's been fun. And if, if any of your listeners want to get in touch with me, you know, feel free to reach out. You can, you can get the, the information and I'll be happy to help. Them. Yeah. All right, Leslie. Well, we'll catch y'all next time. See ya.